From Boise, Idaho and Idaho Education News, this is Extra Credit, your weekly podcast looking at education policy and education politics. I'm Kevin Richard. And I'm Clark Corbin. And you know what, Clark? Podcasting should not be easy. <laughs> no, no, it shouldn't. You might have to make two trips to the post office, but you're just going to have to deal with that. It should not be easy. But in a sense, podcasting is easy this week because there's a lot to get to. I mean, it's been a very eventful week, and we will get to the State House and all of the goings-on there as relates to education policy. But really, you know, all I need to do, all we need to do, and we were talking about before we started, all we need to do is look at what the most popular stories on our website have been this week. It's all about school reopening. It's all about the school reopening debate at the local level and even at the national level. Just a lot to get to. And and this is, you know, again, all five of our most popular stories in one way or another relate to, to school reopening issues. So let's give you what you want. Let's talk about a very eventful week on the school reopening front. Yeah, the clean sweep in terms of our most popular stories, yeah. all on the topic of reopening. That's what everybody's interested in. It's the biggest story in our world this week, but not just in local school districts. The debate spilled over into the state house hallways, and we'll get to that in a minute. But Kevin... Let's start uh, just with sort of the news. You had an analysis piece that kind of captured this on Thursday, but this week we saw three large districts move ever closer to returning to full-time in-person learning for all grades. Why don't you kind of set the stage and then walk us through what it means and what we're hearing and what's changing? And, and I want to get to that fascinating interview you had with State Board President Debbie Critchfield, but let's start just with the news first. Yeah, lots of news, and you know, shout out to our team who have been reporting on these school board meetings all week. Uh, Sammy Edge, uh, Nick Strang, Devin Bodkin, they've been on the ground uh, listening to school board meetings. West Ada, the state's largest school district, moving closer to a, a reopen. Might not happen until the end of March. They want uh, time for uh, teachers to become fully vaccinated, but they're, they're moving in that direction. Um, we saw the same thing happening in Pocatello, Chubbuck. Uh, Twin Falls expanded its calendar a little bit. Um, they're almost to full-time learning in that district. Uh, the Boise School District discussed it on Monday. Uh, the discussion is ongoing, and uh, trustees there will uh, look at their options again next week. So here you're talking about you know, four of the largest school districts in the state, four urban school districts. You know, or suburban district when you think about West Ada. Yeah. But taken together, you're talking about a lot of students. You're talking about, you know, probably about 80,000 students if you tally it up between those four school districts. So the movement towards increased face-to-face learning at this stage of the school year, really, really a significant development. And, and as we, you know, as we met as a staff Monday and mapped out our week, we kind of realized that this week was all going to be about school reopening issues and school reopening debate at the community level. So lots of coverage there. And that was kind of the backdrop uh, for the piece that I published on Thursday. Yeah. And, and, and we'll get into that in just a second. But the reason that we're seeing the school reopenings, a, a couple reasons, and you pointed this out, uh, but some of the context is important. Teachers have been cleared to receive the COVID-19 vaccine since January, but also we've been tracking, and you've really been tracking in depth, a decrease um, in COVID-19 new case numbers uh, in the state. And so those were kind of the reason, you know, if people ask, well, why now? Why 
why reopen now? That that was kind of the background that we're seeing, right, Kevin? That that led up to these decisions, or that is contributing to these decisions, right? Yeah. Yes, and as I see it, you've got three driving factors that are bringing us to where we are right now in the state, and vaccines obviously are, are one of those game changers. Where you know teachers really now for the better part of a month yep. have been receiving the vaccine. Many teachers by now are probably either getting their second dose or they've got their second dose scheduled. So, you know, really by the end of February into, you know, early to mid-March, you're going to get to the point where, you know, just about any teacher or any K-12 staffer who wanted to get the vaccine has probably gotten the vaccine. That's why West Ada is talking about a, a reopen towards that late March timeframe. Yep, absolutely. Case numbers have really dramatically tapered off, and that affects you know all of the other metrics that we deal with with coronavirus. That affects hospitalization rates, and it does affect uh, the death rates that you see uh, from COVID nineteen. So as the case numbers have decreased, you know, in general, and also in the K twelve community, that's that's a definite factor. Also, you know, there's just the, the political pressure, if you will, or the political sentiment behind reopening. We saw that uh, come out a couple of weeks ago when Boise State University uh, issued its annual public policy survey, yeah. survey at Holland's about reopening issues. They found you know, pretty strong sentiment for full-time face-to-face instruction, or at least a hybrid, at least part-time face-to-face instruction really across the board, across any demographic, but even more strong support for that when uh, parents were asked about it or when uh, respondents who identified as Republicans uh, were asked about the reopening issues. So all of those factors, but you know, as I said in my piece, you know, none of those factors are unique to Idaho. You know, 26 states have done what Idaho is doing with the vaccine and have tried to get uh, teachers and staff a place early on in the line to get vaccines. So Idaho isn't doing anything unique here. And as has been well chronicled, Idaho's overall vaccination rates really among the lowest in the nation. The penetration uh, of the vaccines in Idaho among the lowest in the nation. Case numbers are dropping you know, across the nation. And thank goodness for that. I mean, you know, but uh, you know, we're not in a unique situation here in Idaho with a, a drop off in cases. And, and the political sentiment for school reopening, I, I think if you ran a poll in just about any other state, especially you know, a red state, I think you'd see probably similar numbers. So there's really nothing unique here in Idaho about you know our juncture right now in the school reopening issue when you look at those factors. No, when you look at the, the conditions and those factors and the context, not super unique, but at the same time, you were able to kind of connect the dots this week and show that Idaho is ahead of the curve nationally when it comes to this reopening situation, what did you find and what did you mean by that? Well, I had a really interesting interview with uh, Debbie Critchfield, the president of the state board, uh, for this story. And we were able to really kind of walk through the process. And, and you know, Debbie Critchfield has been working on this issue really for the better part of a year. Um, the state board has been working on it, but as president of the board, Critchfield has been uh, point person on a lot of this uh, school reopening debate. And what she said, and what she feels is the the real factor here, is that the state started talking about this months ago. And it started talking about it in the spring and in the summer. I mean, she described it 
go back to last spring, and we covered this back in, in the spring last year. You had some school officials wanting to reopen then. They wanted to reopen before the end of the 2019-2020 school year. I they remember that. In May. It, it didn't really happen, but Critchfield said when she started to hear that from school administrators in May, she knew that those same administrators and others were going to be really pushing hard to get the doors open in August and September. So she knew that there was going to be a push to reopen, and she felt like the state board, the governor's office, really needed to get out ahead of it and to provide a framework that would uh, make that possible and, and to allow the districts and the charters that were ready to reopen to do that and to provide the framework for districts and charters if they were a little bit you know, apprehensive about uh, a reopen right at the start of the year but wanted to kind of maybe get to that point later in the school year, they had a framework to do that as well. And, you know, you and I, we, we talked to Critchfield so much. I mean, she's one of our, you know, one of the sources we quote a lot because she is so, uh, so visible on so many education topics. Right. By virtue of her position on the, on the state board. But one of the things that, uh, you know, you know, I really appreciate about, uh, about Debbie Critchfield is she's, very much an open book. I mean, she will answer your questions and she will, you know, she will tell you exactly, you know, what, what she thinks about stuff and, and exactly, you know, how things worked. And I think in this interview, she kind of, you know, opened up about, you know, the process that she went through last summer because I asked her, okay, so you were doing all this last summer. You were talking about the reopen and the case numbers were, were skyrocketing in the summer, you know, not good. <laughs> it, it did not look good. And it did not look good for not just for school reopening. It did not look good, period. It, it was, you know, a, a pretty sobering surge that we were seeing with the virus in Idaho. And I asked her, you, you had to have been hearing from folks at that time who were saying, are you kidding? You really think we're going to have open schools this fall with these numbers going, going the way they are? And she didn't flinch. She said, oh, yeah. Yeah, I yeah, I was hearing from folks who were sending emails to me saying, you know, state board is going to have blood on its hands if you open schools too early, and you know. But she was also saying, look, I was also hearing from parents who were saying we really want to get reopened, and parents who were saying I really want my kid back in school, but I'm really apprehensive about whether that's safe. And just kind of talk about the process, uh, what she was hearing from parents, what she was hearing in conversations with uh, with the health districts. You know, it really gave me a, a sense looking back at how we got to this point to give me an idea of, you know, this is where we are in February and this is why we are where we are in February. And, you know, part of the linchpin of the whole story this week was uh, what's happening at the federal level. You know, President Biden has... Uh, you know, been talking a lot about the reopening issue and, you know, has come under criticism for setting a 100-day goal of getting schools open at least one day a week. Yeah, his idea of reopening might be a little bit different than what people in Idaho think about when they think about reopening, or at least the debate we're having here right now. Uh, and, and, right. I mean, when you think about it, when you think about if your goal is one day a week uh, reopen, which maybe you know, which may make sense elsewhere, you know. Yeah, in Los Angeles or Chicago or New York, that may make more sense. It's almost irrelevant here in Idaho because that's already happening. We track it as we track this, and you know, 
and it has pretty much happened. I mean, there are two charter schools in the state that are full full time online, not counting the virtual charter schools, which are always full-time which won't online. change. Yeah, every other school, every other charter is at least doing hybrid. So, you know, in essence, Idaho is already doing what President Biden wants to see happen at the national level. And when I ask Critchfield, well, what do you make of that? When you hear that coming from the White House, when you hear that goal from the White House, uh, she said, I think that's a great goal, but I don't think it's a great goal for Idaho because it's coming about nine months too late. So really it was a chance for me to try to look, you know, look more holistically at a really full week of reopening debates at the local level and how it all juxtaposes against the national debate over reopening. And another person I talked to for this story was Lane McAnally, the president of the Idaho Education Association. One of the things I wanted to ask him about is, okay, the national debate over school reopening has really been couched as a a struggle between a a Democratic president and one of his most logical constituencies, you know, the national teachers unions. And I asked, do you think that that's a fair categorization of of the debate. And he said, he says he thinks it's an oversimplification because all of the national teachers unions are talking about is the same thing that he says that he's talking about here in Idaho. You know, let's listen to the teachers. Let's have them have a voice in this process and let's listen to the science. And, you know, he's a lot more measured about the reopening as he sees it unfolding. You know, he says that some districts are doing a better job of listening to teachers and listening to the science. Others you know, are, are are not doing as as good a job of that, and he acknowledged that there's a lot of political pressure right now on school boards, uh, a lot of political pressure to reopen the schools. But you know, he's a little bit more concerned about how it's unfolding, while saying, you know, "Look, teachers want to be back in the classroom; they just want to be back safely, and they just want to make sure that you know we're mindful of the fact we're in the middle of a pandemic still." Yeah, absolutely. A lot of good stuff. And pardon me, a lot of good stuff in your analysis this week. You can find that piece in all of our school reopening pieces at the homepage, which is www.idahoednews.org. And obviously, we'll keep an eye on the reopening debates next week. As I mentioned, Boise School District will discuss it again. We'll keep an eye on it. And as you all know, we track school opening status in real time. We have a, a a map that we're constantly updating about who's open, who's hybrid, who's online. And you can see that. And you can also see kind of where the uh, the counties stack up in terms of coronavirus spread and coronavirus uh, alert status. So you can see all of that on the, on the website. Yeah. Friday afternoons, Friday early evenings, rather, you do kind of a weekly uh, trend piece. And, and then on Mondays, you, you look at the trends in the school system. So a couple more updates uh, that will be timely that will be coming uh, the way of our readers and listeners uh, later Friday and then again on Monday, right? Yeah. So a lot of data points that we provide to you on a weekly basis um, as we continue to stay on top of this thing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, that was our big story. Uh, and, and like I said, it, it sort of transcended the hallways of local schools and entered the hallways of the state house in a big way, didn't it, Kevin? It, it sure did. And, you know, you were there virtually on Monday as the, the issue surfaced at the state house and really kind of a 
startling development early on in house education on Monday. Yeah, uh, quite a week uh, in reopening discussions and reopening policies were a big part of it. My week kicked off bright and early, virtually, as you said, on Monday morning. Superintendent of Public Instruction Sherry Ubarra had her in-person learning draft bill up for introduction. Uh, That was a bill that Superintendent Ubarra had uh, previewed uh, for several weeks now. She's written an op-ed uh, guest opinion piece about it. Uh, she shared it with regional superintendent groups. She told the legislature it was coming. I think she offered a brief preview during her big budget hearing uh, a couple weeks ago. So this was a big deal. And right off the bat, Superintendent Ibarra raised the stakes saying that I think this is one of the most important pieces of legislation that I've brought forward to you. But the House Education Committee uh, was not on board uh, at all. Um, I thought this was kind of interesting. Superintendent Ibarra, obviously a Republican from Mountain Home, the legislature and the House Education Committee also under Republican control, Republican supermajority control in both instances. But that committee voted unanimously to kill or to block the introduction of Ibarra's in-person learning bill. This is a pretty big deal uh, given that Ybarra said that it was one of the most important pieces of legislation she had brought forward. It was kind of one of her big policy items from this year. It relates to the school reopening plan. But like we've talked about, just some sort of peel back this curtain on the state house. Introductory hearings, not always, but often, are kind of a formality, especially when Republicans are working with Republicans, right, Kevin? A lot of times that introductory hearing... They don't take public testimony. They try not to really vote on the merits of the bill. It's just about getting it introduced. And all all the time, I think this is my 11th straight legislative session, all the time I hear people say, eh, I've got a question about this bill. I'm not sure how I feel about it, but I think we need to introduce it to have that debate at a full hearing. We hear that all the time, right? Right. And so it is really unusual for a statewide elected official to have a bill killed in the print hearing process. It's and killed unanimously. After a full public hearing. But, you know, it's very unusual what we saw happen. That's why it was so newsworthy. That, you know, it's a little bit insider, but it is really significant when you see a state officer, a statewide elected official um, get, you know, you know, get pushed back to that extent in committee in the print hearing. And you, know, you were there for the rest of that hearing and we saw the two bills on school closure and school reopening that legislators have pushed for. Those came out of committee. Those both passed the House later this week. Yeah, it appears that at least as far as the House is concerned that House Bills 67 and 68 are the way that they want to go when it comes to school reopening and school closure authority rather than the superintendent's proposal. The superintendent was encouraged to rewrite her bill and bring it back. She has that option. We haven't seen that happen yet. But meanwhile, while her bill was killed, two other bills advanced. Um, And those really defined and limited who has school closure authority and, and who can do what. The first bill, House Bill 67, really is all about K-12 public schools and charter schools. And 
What this bill does, it does several things, but it takes away the authority if it passes. If this bill is passed into law, it would take away the authority for the Department of Health and Welfare and for the local regional public health districts to close a school. It would take that away and it would spell out in law that the only people who have the authority to close a school are the governor, and that authority already exists, the State Board of Education, and that authority already exists, or the local school board or charter school board of directors, that authority also exists. And so really, um, it's specifying, uh, it's calling this out in state law, but one of the big effects would be taking away the authority of the health district or the health and welfare department to close the school. That bill passed out of the House Education Committee on Monday, and then it passed the House floor really pretty comfortably uh, on Thursday. I want to say it passed something like 65 to 5. Um, and so that, that bill is off and running, but that appears to be how the House wants to handle reopening. And that's an issue, Kevin, that's been a long time coming. If you think back to that special legislative session from August, the extraordinary session, legislators on an education working group wanted to get kind of the precursor to House Bill 67. They wanted the governor to consider that during that special legislative session over the summer because they wanted this in place for the school year when it started. That did not happen. So there was a lot of pent-up support and interest in that bill. It's off and running. It's cleared the House. It's on its way being sent to the Senate. As we speak, that may be the House's preferred method for dealing with K-12 closure and reopening issues. What do you think about that? It, it appears that way. I mean, I think the, the timing of what happened in House education, the vote that we saw on the House floor, we see this a lot. <laughs> the legislature has its own thoughts about how they want to do something, how, how they want to approach this. And, you know, I think we should note that, you know, Abara's bill, which may yet come back, she may do a rewrite. Yeah, absolutely. They, they, open, they left the door open to that. There were school superintendents who were concerned about her bill from the beginning. And they were concerned that they felt like it was uh, an infringement upon their uh, authority to make uh, school opening decisions. That's exactly so there, right. There is a clear distinction here in terms of the bill that passed the House that said these decisions rest with, well, they, they can rest with the governor, they can, they can rest with the state board, but they can they're generally going to fall to the district, uh, the district trustees or the charter school boards. Which is the policy, basically, that Governor Little and Debbie Critchfield State Board of Education pushed out this summer with reopening is that we want the local school boards to make these decisions. And, and that's what happened. Uh, right. But you're, you're absolutely right. We fall that we saw last summer. Yeah, yeah, the, the, that was over the summer. But you're absolutely right. This Region 3, I believe it was Region 3 Superintendents Association came out against the Ybarra legislation, the Ybarra reopening plan, and said that they were concerned that it could, you know, force schools to operate in an unsafe position, that it usurped local authority. Um, Superintendent Ybarra talked about how she wanted the default to be open. Uh, so there was some opposition to Superintendent Ibarra's bill before it even surfaced, and then that continued when it was killed at its introductory hearing on Monday. We have full coverage of that hearing. I mentioned House Bill 67, 
which has to do with K-12 and charter school reopening plans, a companion bill, really similar in structure, I think even had the same legislative co-sponsors, House Bill 68 addresses higher education uh, uh, closure and reopening authority. Basically, really simple uh, for colleges and universities. It asks them to come up with a plan for operating and for addressing con uh, infectious contagious diseases. And then it says the State Board of Education uh, shall have the power, shall be the only group to have the power to close higher education institutions based on those pandemic plans. But then it deviates when it comes to community colleges. And I guess there's a little bit of a different governance structure, right, Kevin? Yeah. Community yeah. colleges have their own locally elected boards of trustees. And so like College of Western Idaho, they have their own local board, same with CSI. And so the difference on this House Bill 68 on the higher education reopening bill and plan is that it would give the reopening and closure authority to the community college boards of directors, those local boards. And so real similar structure to the K-12 bill. It recognizes the statewide existing authority from the state board of education. And then it's focusing on uh, in instances where there is a local board, giving that local board uh, that authority, whether it's a K-12 school district, whether it's a charter school board of directors, or for House Bill 68, the Community College Board of Directors. So they were described as companion bills. The same people were working on the bills, and really the structure and organization of the bills is the same. House Bill 68 also passed out of committee on Monday, also passed out of the House floor on Thursday. Just a little bit more opposition to House Bill 68, the higher education bill. Um, a little bit more concern from Democrats in particular about local control, questioning whether the state board should be the only ones to have the authority when it comes to colleges and universities. But I think that thing still passed something on the order of 60 to 10 and is now being sent to the Senate as well. And I think, and I think we're at that point in the session where things are changing quickly, developing quickly. I mean, I was just thinking about some of the stuff we've written about this week, some really important education topics uh, rising to the surface. Uh, this morning, a bill introduced that would split up the four college and university budgets. This is an idea that's being uh, run in conservative circles. It's part of that continuing backlash against basically against Boise State University. Yeah. Uh, that was introduced in House State Affairs uh, Friday morning. Uh, House State Affairs Committee passed a bill to the House floor, you know, as we speak here Friday morning, it may or may not come up for a vote on, on the floor Friday, so watch for that. Uh, this is a bill that would eliminate the August school election date yeah. uh, for, for levies and bond issues. We had another, uh, resolution regarding uh, public gatherings, including uh, gatherings at uh, school sporting events that passed the House. I mean, this is one of these weeks where there's a new development over the, at the State House every day or multiple new developments at the State House every day. All I can tell you is, you know, we're watching this as closely as we can, even though we're watching much of the session virtually. Uh, we do a uh, 
most days we have a, a roundup uh, from the state house, and that roundup gets updated as the day goes on. So if you read it in the morning, you might still want to check back in the afternoon because uh, things do change and uh, new bills, new new topics do uh, surface as the as the day goes on. Yeah, I just want to give a quick plug for our coverage of House Joint or House Concurrent Resolution Five. Um, Nick String and I both worked on articles this week. That's the new concurrent resolution, the son of House Concurrent Resolution 2, if you're keeping score at home. But what, what this would do is this is another attempt from Representative Barbara Ehart and Representative Brent Crane to lift the cap on crowds and gatherings that's in the public health order due to the pandemic. And Nick had a really interesting story for Monday about how the girls' district and state tournaments are really caught in the political crosshairs of this debate. In fact, Representative Crane said the reason that they brought this new resolution to lift the limit on crowds and gatherings is because the Idaho High School Activities Association, in organizing the girls' district and state tournaments, which are districts I think are going on now, state tournaments coming up, they decided to have, this was a choice their board made, to have capacity at lower than the 40% capacity that Governor Little and the State Board of Education endorsed. And so um, sort of as a political statement to send a message to the IHSAA, uh, they drafted this new concurrent resolution it passed the House. We'll see if the Senate takes it up or if it or if it gains traction in the Senate. But that would do away with all gathering and group limits, which I think are now up to 50 uh, yep. in this latest Stage 3 public health order that the governor signed just over a week ago, really. Um, it would lift that completely. But the, the genesis, really, or the, the thing that sparked this is, is this girls' basketball tournament. And, and Nick interviewed a couple of the coaches – and had some reaction there. And this was a choice they made about attendance, saying that some schools wouldn't have felt comfortable attending or participating if they had larger capacities or if they had it in venues uh, where some protocols weren't followed. And now this girls' tournament is squarely in the middle of this highly charged political debate. So Nick had coverage of that on Monday. I had coverage of the debate on the floor and on the House. Yeah, and, you know, a story that is just, you know, taken on a life of its own. I mean, this is, uh, you know, when we knew the coronavirus response and we knew the separation of powers issue was going to be a big deal, but it feels like, you know, you know school sports and school, you know, gatherings ha have become kind of a focal point in this debate, which, you know, I I'm surprised at how much attention that's getting at the state house and i i know that that's you know a very visceral issue for people i mean that's something that that hits close to home for a lot of folks but that this has become such a charged issue at the state house is really kind of surprising it, it, it certainly is i think that i want to say that resolution was on the floor monday or thereabouts early in the week really interesting representative ehart and several of the Republicans who spoke in favor of that resolution said, you know, this is about much more than school sports. 
But then I listened to the whole 20-minute debate, and I really didn't hear anything else other than <laughs> school sports, despite promises that it was about more than school sports. The other thing, I really wonder if this bill, if this resolution passes, if it would even do what they say they want it to do. Maybe it would send a message to the High School Activities Association and their board would revote. But you got to keep in mind, it was not the existing capacities limits from the public health order or from state law that were holding back attendance. The High School Activities Association board, which I guess is a group of superintendents, voted to have capacity lower than what's already allowed. And so I don't know that passing a new resolution lifting the limit is going to get any more people out attending that girls' district tournament than what the plan is already for. Representative Mark Gibbs, Republican from Grace, made that point on the House floor. Uh, but yeah, it, it seems like this is more about sending a message, and I don't know if it passes, if it would even have that many more people go to the district tournament because this was a decision that the organizers of the tournament made. And I think even Representative Crane said this is about sending a message. And I think when the first resolution was introduced back at the beginning of the session, you may have seen this, Kevin. I think Representative Crane said something along the effect of sometimes to get what you want, you just have to get legislative legislation moving. I think he said something along those lines when it first came up. So, yeah, a lot of message sending going on at the state house, but that's typical of any legislative session. It just, you know, it feels a little bit more charged maybe this session because of uh, the tensions over the pandemic and the state pandemic response. Yeah, for sure. Tensions, for sure. If we have time for one more uh, moment of legislative tension, let's talk about, oh, I think it's House Bill 88, but let's talk about Representative Mike Moyle, House Majority Leader Mike Moyle's bill on ballot harvesting and what he said at the close of the debate because that's really taken off uh, on social media in particular and that seems like that's kind of dominating the legislative discussion online uh, really the last couple of days. It was, a, it was a tweet that you sent out just as you were watching the House floor proceedings. I mean, you just heard the comment and tweeted it out and it's taken on taking on a life of its own out there. Yeah, what happened, uh, House Majority Leader Mike Moyle was closing out debate on House Bill 88. It was his bill, which would make it a felony to participate in what he called ballot harvesting, but basically it would make it a felony for people to turn in other people's election ballots for them. And the idea was, is he said that a farmer told him that there was some ballot harvesting going on in Washington State uh, where there was a bounty out for returning these ballots. And the way that Representative Moyle described it, citing his unnamed farmer friend, without getting into any specifics or details, uh, he said that in Washington they were paying $20 for a Democratic ballot, but only $5 for a Republican ballot. <clears throat> and Moyle was all worked up about this and felt extremely strongly about it. He brought this bill, but then... Republican after Republican stood up on the floor and said, this bill is a real problem. This bill would turn me and my family into felons. And people gave these examples of, you know, a lot of people live out in rural, remote communities. And people gave examples about rather than making the 15-minute drive 
to the post office or to the county courthouse to drop off our ballot one at a time. People talked about how I brought my neighbor's ballots in. I had my daughter bring in my husband and my ballot and our uncle and her older brother's ballot. And, uh, you know, uh, Greg Cheney talked about how he had his legal assistant um, drop off his ballot in the mail. And so all these people were saying, if this bill passes, you are going to make us felons for delivering our our ballots for our family members or our neighbors as a favor and that we can't have this. And so it appeared that Moyle's bill was going to go down, which would be highly unusual for the Republican supermajority to kill the bill sponsored by the House Majority Leader. It looked like it that's where it was going. And so Representative Moyle was clearly frustrated. And this is where the viral moment came in. But he said, you know what? I get it. You'd have to make another trip to the post office. And I understand that concern. But you know what? Voting should not be easy. That was the quote. And, and then he pulled his bill back and asked for possible amendments because he thought it was going to die. I was just listening to that debate, um, put the quote out there on Twitter, and then attached a video and a link to the bill a little bit later, and it just took off. I've never, <laughs> I've never had a tweet um, had that kind of reach, but uh, people felt strongly about this because of these situations that they got into on the floor. You know, I'm dropping off the uh, a stack of ballots for my family so they don't have to make the long trip down to the courthouse, and this is going to make me a, a felon. But quite a moment, um, and I imagine that uh, that Moyle's heard about this by now. Yeah, no, I, I can't imagine that he hasn't. I mean, with the, with the number of uh, replies that you've gotten, the number of re retweets that that tweet has, has gotten, and, you know, really, you know, this isn't really an education bill. You know, no. this really isn't in our bellywick. And, and the tweet, in, you, know, you do this sometimes, I do this sometimes, we'll hear something interesting or we'll observe something interesting at the legislature that isn't really in our bellywick. It's not something we're going to write a, a whole story about. So we'll do a tweet that's really just sort of, a, it's, it's almost a throwaway, but it is kind of a, you know, hey, this FYI, this is something that you know, happened. And yeah, it has really become, you know, it's you know, sort of a <clears throat> real talking point around uh, Statehouse Twitter the past uh, 24 hours. So, I mean, it, it, it struck a chord. You never know what you're going to see. Follow me on Twitter. You know, yeah. who yeah. knows where we're going to go. But yeah, I mean, obviously voting is this sacred right um, mm -hmm. that people cherish. And this is common. You know, you know what? Voting shouldn't be easy. It struck a chord with people. But we see this, well, Kevin... Time, but, you know, to, to maybe loop it a little bit back to education, yeah. it is at a time when elections and election fairness and concerns about election fairness are, are coming under more scrutiny. We talked about the August election date bill, uh, how state affairs introduced a bill on Wednesday that would prohibit college professors from giving students extra credit for voting. Um, the idea being, well, we should encourage, uh, you know, professors should encourage students to vote, but to give them extra credit that can, um, you know, that can affect scholarships or eligibility for, for athletics, uh, that should not be done. So I don't know where that bill is going to go. I don't know if that bill is going to get a full hearing. I suspect there's a good chance it will. So 
in this whole backdrop of a lot of scrutiny about edu- about elections and, and election procedure, that quote, I think, really struck a raw nerve with a lot of folks. So maybe not surprising that it went so viral. No, elections are a big part of the debate this session. Um, and, and it fits in, right, with this power struggle, the sep- this this power struggle between the legislature, particularly the House Republicans and the governor. Still some raw feelings about the changes the governor made for the primary election last May, moving to a all-absentee uh, mail-in primary election. Very raw feelings from some Republican House members about that. And so election policy, election integrity, election procedures, election dates, uh, that's all on the agenda this session. And one way or another, uh, I feel comfortable saying those bills could affect everybody, uh, yeah. whether it's education issues specifically, like the August levy date, or whether it's just procedures that govern every Idaho adult 18 and over who will be voting. I mean, these are uh, these decisions could, could affect everybody uh, in important ways. And so we'll continue uh, to cover them. But a, a, an odd moment uh, on the floor, for sure, just on Thursday. It's it's picking up over there, and you never know where that's going to go from one day to the next. So. Yeah, I do have a good sign though. The, it's on Twitter. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you're at Kevin Richard. I'm Clark Corbin. If you want to see some of that stuff on Twitter, I do have a good sign though. The first sign that the legislative session will begin to wind down is going to happen on Monday, Kevin, and that's a deadline to introduce bills in non-privileged committees. That's kind of inside baseball. It doesn't affect the House Education Committee, but it is a signal that we're going to move slowly away from introducing new bills uh, to debating and voting on the bills that are already out there and then eventually move towards winding things down. But that happens Monday, February 15th. That'll be the 36th day of this legislative session. And and my, how time flies when you're having fun, right? You know, it's been five weeks and it really does feel like it's picking up. So we will continue to watch it on a daily basis and again you know check our roundups daily and multiple times during the day and follow us on social media for the latest all right uh that was a big week thanks everybody uh for sticking with us we always have a lot of fun on the extra credit podcast breaking down this complicated intersection of education policy education policy just looking outside of my window at all the snow falling i'm super excited for this weekend and hope that a lot of other people are too, whether they have plans to get out sledding with the family or skiing or snowshoeing. Uh, if you're a winter sports enthusiast, probably looking pretty good right about now. So hope but everybody's... Around, I'm looking at this like, this could be interesting this weekend. Yeah, maybe, maybe not so much fun if you're, if you're a runner. Uh, so apologies for that. Yeah, muddle through somehow. Muddle through. All right. But as always, hey, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, I'm Clark. I'm Kevin. Stay safe and have a good week.